Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. Ultraman. Believe it or not, there's a bigger challenge than Ironman when it comes to triathlon, and its World Championships covers three days and 320 miles while circumnavigating the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, we're discussing the unique needs of this event and the training needed to be successful. However, there are many takeaways for endurance athletes of all kinds, regardless of the distance you're tackling. Today, we're learning from Didi Griesbauer, and as you're going to find out, she knows a thing or two about success across multiple sports and distances. We'll be sharing her unique insights into training, planning, dealing with setbacks, and ensuring longevity in the sport that you love. We're fortunate to round out our team today with our very own E.K. Lidberry. So, get your crew ready, because you're going to need them. And let's make you fast. Hey listeners, it's Rob Pickles here from Fast Talk Laboratories. We love sharing our endurance sports science content with all of you. To help with that, we've taken FastTalkLabs.com out from behind the paywall. Now, non-members have limited access to our hundreds of articles, videos, and pathways from experts like Trevor Connor, Dr. Steven Seiler, Alan Cousins, Dr. Andy Pruitt, Dr. Steven Chung, and even myself. Head over to FastTalkLabs.com to learn from our endurance sports science knowledge base today. Well, today we have a bit of a special episode. Not only are we going to talk about Ultraman, but we have the newly minted world champion of Ultraman. And very excited to dive into this, but just to give you an idea, we've all talked about Ironman, which your winner of that event is going to be about eight hours and it's pretty crazy. You do a very long swim, you do a 112-mile bike ride, and then you run a marathon. And that, compared to an Ultraman, is... Nothing? Nothing, short. Nothing. Yeah, you know, we'll warm up. It's, it's shorter. <laughs> so, welcome, Dee Dee. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And why don't we jump there first? Tell us a little bit about what an Ultraman is and why anybody is insane to even <laughs> think about doing this. Well, Ultraman is essentially an ultra triathlon. I think a lot of people assume that it's sort of a either a double Ironman or some sort of factorial of an Ironman distance, but they are truly distances all unto themselves. The similarity being that it does combine swimming, biking, and running. So the distances for Ultraman, it's across three days. Day one, we start with a 10K or a a 6.2-mile swim straight into a 91-mile bike. That's the end of day one. We go home, we go to sleep. Real quick, that's day one, and you started with a 10K. I'm like, that's an easy run. And then she said, swim. 6.2-mile <laughs> swim. swim. And in I said, swim. oh, we're, we're in for a ride here. Okay, <laughs> here we go. We've only just begun. Day one. So day one, 10K swim, 91-mile bike. Day two, 171-mile bike. And then day two is a double marathon. So if you add up the distances... For me as an athlete and anyone who knows me, it is the perfect distance because it's a longer swim than a double Ironman. It's a longer bike than a double Ironman, but it's just a double marathon. So it's a relatively (laughs) short run, which is right up my alley. Wow. Is that the first time anybody's ever said that on Fast Talk? It's just Just a double marathon. marathon. Do you even bother tying up your shoes? Uh, Yeah. I just stuck a gel in my pocket and off I went. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Well, that would work for me because I would be walking the entire thing start to finish. So, yeah. 
Yeah, but Didi, you've got like some serious pedigree and caliber in the sport. So Didi's been a professional athlete for, she's been racing for nearly 20 years, an Ironman 70.3 and a Stanford swimmer, three-time Ironman champion, finished in the top 10 at Kona twice. So Three times. Uh, three times. I'm sorry. I just knocked one off there. <laughs> Diddling you on the resume. <laughs> But uh, so yeah, this is this is quite a caliber of athlete we're talking about here. And you've also done some twelve-hour races too, right? Twelve-hour. I know you're. World I champ- did the twelve-hour time trial world championship back in 2016. Yeah, yeah. I so didn't some even ultra know distance these were cycling things. Oh yeah, you this gotta, is incredible. You got to dig a little. You got to dig a little. You got to want it. But yeah, they're out there. Wow. There's I'm a so whole Im- community of us nutters out there. I am so impressed with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't start with this fresh out of college. No, I didn't. So as EK mentioned, I I swam collegiately. I swam for Stanford University and was part of the U.S. national team and was actually one of the first swimmers to swim post-collegiately. Believe it or not, in this day and age, you know, more than half the U.S. national team is post-college and there's a great number of resources available to post-collegiate swimmers. But when I left college, it was sort of presumed that your swimming career was over, that why would you swim after college? There weren't the resources, there weren't the the training groups to support post-collegiate swimming. I got to the end of my college swimming career in 1992 and was still swimming best times and still in love with the sport. And I thought, well, why why do I have to quit? So I actually swam a couple of years post-collegiately. I didn't make the world championship team in 94 and was starting to feel like I was falling behind my peers, so to speak. And so I retired from swimming and took a, a hiatus from sporting life and got my MBA and went to work on on Wall Street. So I thought, you know, my sporting life was over. I was running some marathons and training a bit just to keep up with my swimming eating habits. Uh. (laughs) And then sort of happened upon triathlon. I just turned on the TV one day while studying for finals when I was in business school and saw the Ironman and just my jaw hit the floor. And I said, "I, I have to try that. Yeah. And then so you started racing as an age grouper for a few years, right? And then... You connected with Karen Smyers, who's a former Ironman world champion, and she kind of took you. She took you under her wing, Very and much she so, yeah. she became like your coach and really helped you become a, well step up to the professional ranks. Yeah, Karen was the one that had first encouraged me to consider the idea of of racing professionally, and it didn't take that much prompting. I think the word "Would you ever consider racing professionally?" They came out of her mouth and I had said yes before she had finished the sentence. And luckily I have an incredibly supportive husband who that evening when I suggested the idea to him, anticipating a little bit of what the actual heck are you talking about? His response was, if you don't go in and quit your job tomorrow, I'll quit it for you. (laughs) Um, So he was fully on board. I don't think either one of us had the idea at the time that it would last for 20 years. But it, it has. It's, it hasn't all been, you know, rainbows and butterflies and unicorns, but it's been a hell of a journey. And uh, I think at the time we thought it would be a year or two and it would be this crazy story. We could tell our friends in a bar one night, but it just one thing led to another and, and here we are. Yeah. And so, yeah, as we said, you obviously had, have had a great Ironman career racing across, you know, 70.3 Ironman. But I, I guess for me, an interesting question is, why then the step up into like the ultra, the ultra distance? Like what's the, you know, a lot of people race Ironman and that is the, that is the Holy Grail, right? And mm-hmm. you, especially if you race Kona. Sure. What was the allure? What was the pull to, to go race even longer than well, Ironman? Well, I mean, the funny thing is that for all of my sporting life, both as a swimmer and as a triathlete, coaches have always said, you know, Didi, you get better as the distance gets longer. 
As a swimmer, I was a backstroker, but somebody had the amazing idea one time to have me swim the mile, which is typically a freestyle event. But Didi, you get in and swim at backstroke. And I did, and I actually swam it really well, swimming backstroke, which is slower than freestyle. Made a U.S. national cut and swam national, you know, qualified for the U.S. national championship, you know, swimming the event backstroke. So I knew the physiology was there that you know, I noticed it on group rides with my triathlon team back in Boston when I first started in the sport, Team Psycho. We'd go out for a three or four hour ride and I'd have to hang on for dear life in the first hour. But I noticed the longer the ride went, I was moving further and further to the front of the group. And by the end, I was sort of towing everybody home and just knew physiologically I'm a slow starter. It takes me a couple hours to get warmed up and get going. But as the event goes on, I, I tend to feel stronger and stronger. And again, in 2016, I had had a number of run injuries. And my coach, Julie Dibbins, suggested that I race the 12-hour time trial world championship. And I thought it was a little crazy, but I thought, well, what the heck? You know, it gave me something to sort of sink my teeth into competitively when I was sidelined with run injuries and, and couldn't compete in triathlon. I got into the 12-hour time trial world championship and I was about maybe seven plus hours in and sort of had this realization that I'm happy as a clam. Like I'm not unhappy right now. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to go another five hours. I wasn't slowing down. If anything, I was feeling stronger. And I thought I might actually be good at this ultra thing. And I'm not sure I want to be, but the, the seed was definitely <laughs> planted. And then Ultraman came about because... One of my very good friends, a woman named Hillary Biscay, who is a former pro triathlete as well, she had done Ultraman. And I was doing some training. Um, she and her husband lived in Arizona at the time, and I had escaped the Boston winter. I lived in Boston for a number of years to go out and do some training in Arizona, and I was staying with them. And, and Hillary was invited to a bike shop to do a talk about her Ultraman experience. And they were going to have drinks and snacks. So I came along, obviously, <laughs> to sit in the back and have some free snacks and just listen to Hillary talk about this event. And just like the first time I saw the Iron Man on TV, sort of my jaw hit the floor and I thought, one day I've got to try that. Oh, okay. So it was like that. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was a long, I think, I mean, that goes back to 2013, maybe that that happened and the seed was, Hillary won the Ultraman World Championship in 2013. So maybe it was 2014 she gave this talk and, and I just was sucked in and I thought, one day. So you've had that tuck behind your ear all that time and it's, and it's just the, in 2020, you did your first Ultraman, right, in Florida. Yes. And so this was your second one, the one in Hawaii you've just yes. done. Yes. Okay. So Ultraman, so the race I just completed was the Ultraman World Championship and yep. they do make you qualify for that. Yep. So when I competed at Ultraman Florida in 2020, it was a means to qualify for the Ultraman World Championship, which was then for two years canceled because of the pandemic. So finally this year, we got a chance to wow. come back. Uh, to the Big Island of Hawaii, wh which is you know where the World Championship takes place. We actually literally race all the way around yeah. the island. Yeah, that's, I was looking at the course maps. That's super cool that you go all the way around. Yeah, it presents some logistical challenges, certainly, because yeah. when I did Ultraman Florida, we would start and finish at the same place mm -hmm. you know, every night, perhaps like the Tour de France, where you're in a different venue every night. Certainly, operationally, it presents challenges for the crew that's supporting the athletes, have to be in a new venue, get them fed, take care of equipment in a different place, get access to a new, you know, place to stay overnight, et cetera, et cetera. And you're sort of sleeping in a different place every night. Of course, for us, it was only 
two nights, but it's still yeah. logistically very different than what I experienced at, at Ultraman Florida. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm fascinated to hear about the training that you did for this because I know, I mean, obviously training for Ironman is is a big undertaking, whether you're an age grouper or professional, whatever racing, you know, whatever level you're racing at. Run us through what your training looked like for Ultraman and how maybe that differed to what training looked like for Ironman. Yeah, well, full credit goes to my coach, Julie Dippins. Were it not for her, I probably would have killed myself in the training because I had some ideas about training that I sort of run a few ideas by her and she's like, okay, good thought, but Mm. (laughs) we're going to modify that a little bit. As it is with regular triathlon training, swimming and biking aren't really the quote unquote problem. The issue comes in with running, right? So when you're running ultra distances, if you go out and uh, it's not like I went out and did a, a seven and a half hour training run in preparation for the double marathon at Ultraman because you open yourself up for injury potential, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So swim and bike were fairly similar to what you would do for an Ironman where you're building distances, building race specific pacing at those distances. So in the pool, we swim a fair amount everywhere anyway. I'm in the pool five to six days a week. We swim anywhere from 4,000 to 6,000 yards per workout. So anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half each time we're in the pool. But to get more specific for Ultraman, I would take one session a week and get in a bit earlier than my squad. So for the first couple of weeks, I just get in and swim an extra thousand yards. And then it was an extra 2,000 yards. And then it was an extra 3,000 yards. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes... Because it is, it's an open water swim and you're allowed to swim in a wetsuit. I would then do those ultra swims, the longer swims and training in my wetsuit, oh, um, which in a swimming the whole, pool, in the pool, in the pool, yeah. the whole workout uh, in the pool, which again, typically you're wearing a wetsuit in open water where the water tends to be a bit cooler. So you go yeah. to your typical swimming pool, it's 80 degrees in the water you tend to get a little warm, but we also knew in a wetsuit in Hawaii, Mm. I was going to get pretty warm. Ultimately, I elected to go with a sleeveless wetsuit where I gave up a bit of buoyancy and perhaps a bit of speed. And we did test that in training. How much slower am I in a sleeveless wetsuit versus the full sleeved wetsuit? And it wasn't drastically slower, but what I did realize is that across, you know, 8,000 meter workouts in the pool, I wasn't overheating as much in the sleeveless wetsuit. And we thought that in terms of the preservation across the three days of racing to set my core body temperature a bit lower when we got on the bike the first day was definitely a a smart thing to do. So that's what we learned in the pool. Um, In the bike, again, we, as we got closer to the race, we would sort of replicate what the race itself would be. So on a Friday, I would do a medium long ride. So maybe a four to five hour ride with some harder intervals in it to replicate what day one was like, because day one in Hawaii, there's quite a bit of climbing. So we would do maybe a four hour ride after a long swim to set up the rest of the weekend. And then Saturday we did build up. I did a number of sort of six to seven hour rides. And then I did two rides of eight hours. And that was largely not only to test the endurance, but to test the nutrition was a big part of that. So going out there for eight hours and trying to replicate the caloric intake that I would need for Ultraman. That was a big part of that. And then the running is, as I said, where we needed to be careful. My longest run was only three hours. And I know that sounds insane, right? A three-hour run is a is a bloody long way to go. Yep. 
but it's nowhere near close to the eight hours I took to run the double marathon or whatever it was, seven hours, 40 something minutes, but we would supplement. So I would go do a long run and then come home, change of clothes and quickly go out and hike Sanitas for an hour and a half. Some days I just did a really, really long hike. I did a four hour hike. For instance, we did a lot of eccentric running uh, to try to load the quads and, and get the legs ready for that. But from a mileage perspective, I came nowhere near running as far as I would run in the race itself. Didi, I also like to do some longer things, not like you, let's be honest, but some longer adventures. And a few times throughout, you mentioned these experiments that you're doing to learn, right? Because this is in some regard, relatively uncharted territory. And I almost think those learnings oftentimes can be more important for success than physiology or increased training, right? The physiology of somebody who's going to be really successful at Kona is maybe not that different from the physiology of somebody who's going to be successful at Ultraman. What becomes even more important is, as you said, practicing nutrition. What works and what doesn't work? What works in the first hour might not work in hour eight or on day three. Sure. This wetsuit might not be the absolute fastest thing in the world, but it's really good for these other parameters. Your shoulders might have been a little bit less fatigued because of the increased range of motion as well. Those things are oftentimes the secret to success. And it's not necessarily always just about more miles, better intervals, lower resting heart rate, and all of these physiological variables. It's 100% about specificity of preparation. And that's a universal concept, no matter what sporting event you're preparing for or what event in life you're preparing for. The specificity of your preparation, if you're going out to race a super hilly bike race, you're not best served spending hours and hours time trialing on on a flat road, right? You want to get out and prepare in conditions and on terrain that is as specific as you can be in preparation for your event. And that's really what we tried to do to the point where I actually went out to Hawaii and made a pretty significant investment, uh, both financially and and in terms of time. I went and did a training camp out there in September on my own to sort of recon the course. I'd been to Hawaii a thousand times, Mm -hmm. uh, both to to do the Ironman World Championship for training camps. I do some commentary for Ironman. So I had been out there in a capacity as a commentator and, and I've ridden those roads for the Ironman World Championship a bazillion times. But Ultraman is sort of everything but the Ironman course. So I went out there to get a sense of what I was in for so that when I came home, I knew both days on the bike finished with sort of long climbs at the end. So all of my riding around Boulder, I would try to finish, you know, climbing up to Jamestown or up to Ward. Obviously, I had to get down, so it's not 100% specific, but I would finish those eight-hour days with a big, long climb to try to replicate that. So, yeah, specificity of preparation was was really, really key. And I think that that's important both on the physiological side but also on the psychological side. When you've done these long training rides and you know you can successfully do this big old climb up to Ward – Come race day, come event day, you know that you have it as well. You're not second guessing yourself. Yeah. Well, there's a certain amount of second guessing anyway, (laughs) because it's a pretty intimidating race to tow a line at. Um, No matter how prepared you are, there's always nerves, right? But the nerves are good. It means you've you've invested. It means you care. But yeah, so I started that race and I had said ahead of time to, to my coaches, you know, what's going to make me feel most confident is to know that we have prepared so precisely. And we did just that both through the training, through the nutrition, my strength programming changed a bit to prepare myself a lot of eccentric loading again, to prepare the legs for that kind of demand. 
it was all so specific in preparation for this event that it gave me a lot of confidence going in that I had prepared as precisely as I, as I thought I could have based on what I had learned from my first Ultraman and based what I had learned on what I had learned from my training camp out there in um, a few months ahead of the event. Right. There's another fun part of this that I think is part of the appeal and part of the allure of like ultra racing, whether it's triathlon, whether it's running, whether it's bike packing, and that is you can be prepared, you you can dial in all the details, but the longer you're out there, the more chance there is that something sure. goes wrong. <laughs> right. And 100%. you have no idea what that what might that's be. be. Right. And I think there's a certain appeal, right, to a certain type of athlete, a certain type of personality that's like, oh, I'm going to have to problem solve on the fly. And you, I cannot imagine that there was anybody more prepared for this race than you were, Didi, like, and, and your team. And so I think there, is, there comes an element of you're just signing up for some unknowns that you're going to have to problem solve on the fly. And so I guess two-part question, sort of like, how do you feel about that? And I also want to hear about some of the things that you did end up having to problem solve, because I'm sure there are some fun ones in the mix. Yeah, there <laughs> definitely are some interesting things that happened. And one of the things, again, that gave me a tremendous amount of confidence was my crew. And part of my love for Ultraman, and we say this in triathlon all the time and in any sporting you know event where you're you're putting your whole heart and soul into preparation it takes a village, right? You mm -hmm. don't do it, even if it's an individual sport, you don't do it on your own. You may have coaches, you have a, a supportive spouse, a supportive family, a training group perhaps that you lean on to help push you that extra bit in preparation. But Ultraman is truly a team sport. You cannot do it alone. You have to have a crew. So I had a crew that came out, we rented... <laughs> so that we'd have the space. And again, we're spending the night in a different place every night. So you've got to take everyone's mm. overnight bag. Uh, my massage therapist came. So we had a massage table on day three because I'm running. My bike has to fit in mm. to the crew vehicle. And a minivan just wasn't big enough. So we ended up renting this sprinter van that I tell you, like I could write a book about the sprinter van <laughs> by itself. It was probably the first sprinter van ever made. And the the rental company had named their fleet and our particular van was named Discovana. Um, but she adopted a, a nickname uh, during the race of Burgundy Betty. She was this color that we long debated. Was it burgundy? Was it mauve? Was it, you know, it was this sort of weird sort of pinkish purple wineish colored vehicle, velvet cushions on the inside. I mean, it was, it literally, we were afraid she wasn't going to make it around the island. And in fact, one of the <laughs> things that went wrong and with something I did not know, she had a, a, a soft rear tire. <laughs> That my crew literally, every time they stopped to give me aid, it was someone's job to jump on the bicycle pump oh, and no. pipe up Burgundy Betty's rear wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so we have hysterical pictures of my crew literally pumping up the tire on this 1972 Sprinter van with a bicycle pump. I didn't know you could do that with a bicycle I pump. I didn't well, know you could. Well, with enough time hard. and effort, you can do it. Uh, no, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this was an ultra, ultra event in itself there. Yeah. So, I mean, the number of things that went, that could go wrong. Yeah. You name it from mechanical with a bike to your own physical, nutritional, emotional, but the crew I had with me are people that I work with day in and day out in my training as a, as a triathlete. And they, they know me very well and they were just as invested. And we were, I hate to say it, we were the envy of every other crew. I mean, my crew worked with NASCAR like efficiency, 
But they had so much fun doing it. Every time the van went by, I could hear the like laughter and screaming in the van. And I was like, I want to be in the yeah, van. Right. <laughs> They're having so much fun in there. Um, there were some very funny stories from the van. One of my nutrition items at the sort of the at deep into each day, I relied a little bit on the, the Mexican Coke, right? Mm-hmm. And what we forgot was a bottle opener, right? Because they come in the little teeny glass bottles and we didn't have a bottle opener. But Kate Ligler, who is my strength coach and was in charge of my nutrition, she tracked all of my calories and tracked everything. She went to open one of the Cokes to put it in a sport bottle with some ice for me. And she sort of wedged it in the door of Burgundy Betty and sort of flicked the the cap off. Bingo, it worked. But then when she went to open the door, she had wedged the lock of the door and they couldn't get out of the van. (laughs) So they all had to funnel out through the front door of the van. So, I mean, a lot of these things just, again, super funny. But in comparison to some of the other athletes, I mean, some of the other athletes had pretty significant issues. One guy was unfortunately hit by a truck. He's fine. Somebody else had hit a bunch of gravel, wiped out, out of the race with a bunch of road rash. Somebody else's crew van that was like a 2019 minivan, like fresh off the line, they actually got a flat tire and had to get an entire new vehicle brought in. So you do have to be prepared for a lot of different things to go wrong. But I had so much confidence in my crew and their capabilities that I knew we would be prepared for most of the things that might happen out there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask about. I'm really interested in the training for this because we've talked about Ironman before where we basically say, that's a low intensity event. It's it's not where you're going to have to worry about that that one minute jump or anything like that. You're you're just kind of depends on your physiology. I think yeah. Ironman's a sprint. Uh, but <laughs> now I do. <laughs> this is certainly you're not going to be doing this at really high intensity efforts. It almost seems like this is as much about being able to get to the finish line as the the pace that you're going to... I think you might be surprised. I mean, I think for a lot of people and everyone's goals are different. And that's what's amazing about sport in general. I mean, you Mm -hmm. have a lot of people in an Ironman. The winners are winning these events in eight, nine hours, but you have 17 hours to finish the race. So that's a pretty wide range. And you have a lot of people that step up to the line at the start of the Ironman saying... For me, getting to the finish line is a huge win. I think you look at any professional and the expectation is that they're going to finish. It's how fast and how right. high up the rankings they can finish. And, and the same holds true for Ultraman. I think a fair number of the athletes went in saying, for me to finish under the time limits, and there are time limits, there's a 12-hour cutoff each day and each discipline. So the swim has a six-hour cutoff. So if you're not out of the water before six hours, and, and they're great because they do allow you to continue. You'll just be an unofficial finisher. And quite a few people did continue despite being unofficial finishers. They were either unable to make the time cuts on previous segments. So everyone's goals are different, but there are a good number of us that towed the line at Ultraman prepared to race it, not okay. just finish it, but but absolutely race it. And so, yes, it's a different effort level, uh, certainly even than, than Ironman. And my coach had given me, you know, wattage targets on the bike. We had wattage targets for steep climbs, gradual climbs, flat sections, sort of a normalized power target each day. We had paces and heart rates on the run that I was not to exceed. And so there was a degree of, it is a controlled effort, but I absolutely was racing. Yeah. So that well, wasn't, I wasn't implying you weren't racing. I was saying it, it's racing it a different way. Like you said, it, it's a controlled intensity. It's a contr- You're not yes. going out and saying, let's go as hard as I can and just see how it goes. hundred like, percent not. I right. have to keep it at this pace sure. or I'm not going to make it I'm to the end of I'm not going to make this. it to the, right. 
Alter Exploration is an adventure cycling tour company created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case. Alter Exploration's journey are as much about finding joy as they are about changing people's perception of what's possible. When you explore with Alter, you'll have a stunning, safe, and supportive environment for physical and mental transformation. You'll have opportunities to hone humility through challenge, and you'll have the freedom to test your limits while respecting your absolutes. If Alter had a catchy slogan, it would probably go something like this. The assurance of adventure, the guarantee of beauty, the satisfaction of exhaustion. Prepare to be altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. Can I ask what sort of speeds are you riding at on mm. average? And then maybe even like what percent of FTP, if you could go into, I don't know that we need to give away the secret sauce of exactly the watts you were riding, but can we put this into perspective of the intensity that you were going at? I was actually surprised and a little bit wide-eyed. I sat down with my coach and I had an idea just based on my performance at Ultraman Florida, what I was able to hold across these distances and when I sat down with Julie the night before and we went day by day. So when I sat down the night before day one and we talked about power targets, she gave me a pretty long leash. I, I was surprised that, I mean, I was upwards of my 70.3 race pace on some of the, the climbs. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of descents where I knew I was going to be able to recover. But on average, I think I averaged just below Ironman race pace for both days one and two and, and on a normalized basis. Yeah. So it was a lot harder effort that I was able to sustain. And yeah. a lot of that comes down to my nutrition. I, I learned a great deal between Ultraman Florida and the Ultraman World Championship, how to fuel that. And that is right. so much a part of it. And that's, I think, a big part of what makes a difference between kind of getting through the day and really attacking it and racing it in a controlled manner. But was the nutrition that I was able to fuel the effort and, and sort of sustain powers that I thought across that distance were pretty aggressive. Yeah. So you raced it around Ironman power? On a normalized basis, I was not far. I was below, but not far below Ironman race pace well, for both if, days. If we think, if everybody closes their eyes and visions the power duration curve, right? It starts and drops off very steep on the short durations. But as you get to the right side on that long tail, one hour, two hour, three hour, four hour, it's relatively flat and horizontal at that point. There's yep. not much of a difference between a three hour and an eight hour mm -hmm. race pace. There is a difference. Don't get me wrong. Yes. But we're talking a couple percent there. And and for me, it's actually even more pronounced. I had done some testing in the lab with Jared Berg at CU before it, it uh -huh. shut down. Yeah. And literally we were going about the test and I was, I look at it the other way, sort of the, the price is right game where the little mountain climber climbs up the thing <laughs> on the price and falls off the curb at the end. Yep. My slant is so gradual, but then all of a sudden in a minute, like I go from one extreme to the other almost instantaneously. Like he looked at me, he's like, what happened? In terms of lactate. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yep. I can go forever. Mm -hmm. My physiology definitely reinforces the fact that I'm good at ultra. Yep. And not and, good and that at sprinting. Makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yep. The opposite is true as well. Yep. <laughs> I'm not going to win any town line sprints. <laughs> yeah, and and you naturally probably oxidize a lot of fat. I would assume. You know, another great key determinant to success in events like this because you're um, needing to supplement or. Maybe everybody, it's kind of an eating contest, I bet, while you're out there, right? But 
you might run into less of a caloric deficit because you do have a higher fat oxidation rate and less carbohydrate oxidation than some other people. And we got a whole lot smarter about my nutrition. One of the things I learned at Ultraman Florida, and, and I went into Ultraman Florida thinking, I'll just replicate my Ironman nutrition across three days of racing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong answer. <laughs> yeah. We learned very early on on day two where I was, you know, taking the sort of sugary sports drinks in on day two and was was dreadfully ill right out of the gate. Yeah. And thankfully on my crew for Florida, I had a, a training partner who had raced Ultraman in the past and they literally pulled into the nearest convenience store and just stocked up on a lot of other things to try. Sure. But the remainder of Ultraman Florida was a guessing game as to what can she get down and what can she hold down. And so we got a lot smarter going into Ultraman Hawaii in preparing with real food sources uh, for as long of the event as we could early in on almost all days taking real food as as nutrition as opposed to sports nutrition because you get over overloaded on sort of the sugary stuff and your stomach starts yep. to reject it. So to the extent that I could take real food, particularly on the bike in day one and day two, so that day three, I really could lean on the the simpler sports nutrition type stuff was, was very, very important as well. And then another thing that we focused on, you think you get to the end of the day, you have your recovery smoothie, everything's good, going to go back, have dinner, get my massage, go to bed. No, we had a very specific nutrition script for once we finished. So every hour on the hour, I had certain things that I had to get down the hatch because you're basically starting, the, the tank is empty and you've got to refuel so that you fill the tank up before you go to sleep and it sort of depletes itself again to get ready for the next day. So very specific nutrition protocols for after the race as well each day. Something I want to point out is Ultraman in itself is a very unique event, but the takeaways that we have here are mirroring a lot of the advice that we would have for anyone doing Events like this, multiple days of this six to 10 hours per day, it doesn't matter if you're bikepacking around Iceland. It doesn't matter if you're doing ultra man. It doesn't matter if you're doing the Tour de France. There's so many similarities and takeaways across all of the events that anyone listening, you can apply everything that Didi has learned to what you're doing. Even if you never do an Ultraman, this is really applicable information. Well, even if you're doing a 10K, I think it's applicable. I mean, it's it's a different nutrition strategy, but you need to practice it ahead of time. You can't just wake up race morning and be like, okay, how's this going to go? Like you need to think about it ahead of time and test your theories in training to see what works and what's going to be successful for you. And I think that's universal across any distance in any sport or any sort of adventure type yeah. activity you take on. Yeah. yeah, I'm super keen to learn what you had on the menu for your nutrition. Because yeah. I know, like you said, you obviously you had the sugary sports drinks on and products on final day for the double marathon. But what were your go-tos when it came to real food? Again, I don't want to give away state oh. secrets <laughs> and all, okay. but we had to go with things that were obviously pretty simple, simple to eat. You can buy anywhere. Hostess donuts. Actually, no. But, oh, man. <laughs> any but jer- good guess. Any, any jerky? Any boiled eggs? No, none, none of that. I actually used quite a bit of um, organic baby food, but not the vegetable kind. So like the the blueberry banana oat mm-hmm. and oh, the, so the plain oh, yeah. banana. The only issue with those is that they're very difficult to open. You ne- need two hands and you a pretty do. strong grip to open them. So that's where my crew came in. I just had open baby food pouches at my disposal whenever I wanted. I spent a year of my life when my kids were young stealing their, and when you said the oat one, oh, it is so good. Stealing their food when I would go out for a bike ride. Yeah, it's it's great and it's real food. Yeah. 
I was mindful of the fructose because that tends to disagree with me uh, when you overload on the fructose. They don't have a lot in it, but enough that we needed to use it sort of in moderation. So baby food was a big go-to and that was tested a lot in training. Ironically, didn't work as well on the run. uh, And that's why we went back to the sports specific nutrition on the run, but uh, the baby food on the bike. And the other thing that was... (laughs) A big part of our nutrition were King's Hawaiian rolls. Mm. Oh, yeah. uh, now, if you're familiar with the King's <laughs> oh, Hawaiian so rolls, the sweet, the sweet yeah. rolls, they taste really good. They're super mushy, so you can sort of grab it and squeeze it oh, into yeah. the palm of your hand and make it into just this little, like, tightly. And it's sort of like I could hold on to the arrow bars and hold on to the roll at the same time and just sort of take a bite and go back to my bars and take a bite and go back to my bars. And the other thing that's great about them is that when you take a sip of water with a bit of King's Hawaiian roll in your mouth, it just melts. Wow. It absolutely just melts. Because one of the things I learned at Ultraman Florida is that I don't do well chewing when I'm working. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So on the bike, I, I can't do solids. It's got to be something that's sort of easy enough to sort of chew and digest. I, I can't chew it a lot. It yep. was just too much. And certainly running, there was there would be no chewing. So those were two big food items. There were a couple of white chocolate macadamia nut cookies and a few Pop-Tarts, I'm going to say. Oh, yeah, yeah, a few Pop-Tarts. Staples, yep. Pop-Tart is like ultra, mm-hmm. ultra anything winner, I think. And, you know, the Pop-Tart is just something, and I talked about this uh, with my nutritionist, Andrew Dole, quite a bit. And when I roll into a gas station in the middle of a long ride... My go-to is usually like a Coke and and a Pop-Tart because it's it's a treat. Like it's, hey, you're halfway through your long ride. What what, what do you want to do to celebrate? Well, I want to eat a Pop-Tart and drink a Coke. <laughs> and so we tried to include those things into the nutrition as well. So there were a couple of Pop-Tarts down the hatch, I'm not embarrassed to say. Are you a strawberry frosted mm-hmm. or are you a cinnamon type? Uh, you know, it depends on the day, but for Ultraman, it was definitely the strawberry frosted. Yeah. And do you know, they make a gingerbread one? I did what? not. Yes, they make a gingerbread one. Uh, is it, that a holiday special? Is it it might have been a holiday year? special, oh. but I found it in the grocery stores out in Hawaii. And we, we did have some in the van because I think the tagline for my crew is uh, fueled by Pop-Tart. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were quite a few pop tarts going down the hatches of my crew. That'd be the sponsorship well. to have. I know. Right there. I tagged them in socials a couple of times, but strangely, <laughs> they haven't called. <laughs> a different I, demographic. So, the thing I'm interested in going back to a bit I mean, you really have to plan out this event. You have to figure out everything. You have a nutritionist there who's figuring out what you're eating every hour. You're figuring out the pace that you're going to be doing on every climb and every flat stretch. This all has to be mapped out to survive. So, to give you a contrast, you know, I'm, I'm a road racer, so a lot of my races are, are two, three hours. I can't tell you how many races I've shown up to and gone, oh, I forgot my race food. I forgot my water bottles, whatever. And you just go and do the race, and, and all you're worried about is, is making that break or whatever. You can get away with the, I don't plan this out perfectly because it's two hours. You might feel a little worse at the end of the event, but, but you're going to be fine. Yep. But here, you do that. You're not finishing. The mistakes get magnified the longer the distance gets, certainly. You can rock up to a 5K and and skip breakfast all entirely, right? right? And run your 5K and be like, well, that wasn't ideal, but how much did it really hurt me, right? Not that much. Take that to a half marathon. You're probably going to get hurt if you don't eat breakfast, if you forget your right. bottles, if you forget your, your sports nutrition for the race. Probably going to hurt you a little bit more. You get to a marathon, that's even worse. Now take it across three days. Yeah, the mistakes get magnified. And again, going back to things like the decision on the sleeveless wetsuit, it wasn't necessarily 
I probably would have swum slightly faster had I worn my full suit, but I thought across three days, the better dividend would come from keeping that core body temperature down. So a lot of decisions are made not in the context of what's going to make that segment the fastest, what's going to make that day the fastest, but what's going to give me the best chance to have my three best days. days. Exactly. Exactly. So every decision is made in the context of a three-day event. Yeah, you're kind of looking at the big picture, like the longer lens view versus just trying to hit the fastest times. And Yeah. How does this translate into your training? Is this something that you think about in training that you work with in your training of not only doing the intervals right, getting out and getting the, the time on the bike or running or swimming, but also how do I make sure I get through this most effectively so that tomorrow I can train well? That was at the forefront of my mind and, and sort of my theme. And I did a lot of my preparation solo. My squad, they were all preparing for the Ironman World Championship and, and different events. And, and so I, I was doing a lot of solo training. In fact, almost all of my bikes and runs from September 1st until the event were done alone. And so my mantra in my head became just because you can doesn't mean you should. should. (laughs) So I would get to the end of some of these super long, long rides and and have the climb to finish and be like, Hey, I got a lot left in the tank. I'm just going to go for it on this climb and and, and see what I've got in the tank. No, because I'm thinking I've got a three hour run and a 90 minute hike tomorrow. And I don't want to jeopardize my performance tomorrow just to see what I can do on this climb today. So it did take a lot of patience and especially when you're alone and your coach isn't there sort of finger wagging mm-hmm. saying, no, no, no. So literally throughout a lot of my preparation, just in the back of my mind, just because you can doesn't mean you should. That takes an enormous amount of discipline because especially athletes, I think you can be wired to when you're feeling good, you want to press the you go, go yeah. button. You want to make hay while the sun is shining. Right. And, and to a certain extent, there is a lot of balancing of that in that, yes, We took day three in the run and it starts with the first 17 miles are largely all downhill. And so you take that in the context of the overall day and yeah, your pace is going to be slightly faster because you're going downhill. But in the back of my mind was this race does not start until I get up onto the Queen K, which is about mile 18, 19. So even though I wanted to take advantage of the fast downhill sections and when we started, the field literally ran away from me. And it's something that I had practiced mentally with my sports psychologist. And the good thing is that I do it in training all the time because my entire squad runs faster than I do. So the start of any group run, they all run away from me. And it makes you feel a little panicky, like, oh, my God, I'm not good enough. I have to I have to go. I have to go. I have to go. But because I had sort of experienced it in training every single day at the start of day three, a lot of the field just went. You start with this glorious mm-hmm. downhill section and everybody was running so fast. But I was like race does not start till you get on the Queen K. I just kept telling myself this. And by the time we even got to the Queen K, I had reeled back in four or five people and was in, I think, fourth place overall, which is where I stayed for the rest of the day. So a lot of people go out too fast. And even though it feels good, my goal was, yes, it feels good. Appreciate it now and make it feel good for as long as you can. Just because it feels good, don't, don't milk that let's see how long you can make it feel good. So hold back, if nothing else, through this downhill section so that the feel good bit can, you know, last longer when you get out onto the Queen K. And that's a huge mistake that people make. If this feels good now, I should do something to really take advantage of it. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balancing act for sure. And it does require, I have learned a lot of patience and and EK's trained with me before. She knows that doesn't come easy for me, but it, it taught me a lot of patience. 
Yeah, and I think this leads nicely into, I was going to say like this, yeah, this is obviously about discipline. It's about patience. It's about smarts, right? A lot of this that you're talking about, you only get to when you've been doing a sport or you've been training for as long as you have. I think this isn't something that the young whippersnapper just pops up and, you know, there can be too much enthusiasm. There can be too much of, yeah, I feel great, let's go. I think that you learn it and there's partly an element of nature and nurture here too, but like, you know, Didi's learned it but you have to have that discipline. You have to like have that patience. And I think that takes us nicely to the topic of age, right? And, and experience. Yeah. Um, longevity. Sorry, Didi, How about Didi, longevity? Didi wince then when I... I know. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, man. I knew, I knew it was coming. <laughs> I, I, was had this, I, I had this sneaky that. feeling. <laughs> uh, I was going to be the nice one and raise it since we're both early 70s children. So. Yes. yes. Sorry, I thought you were going somewhere else with that. I was I'm, like, I'm not damn. embarrassed to admit I am older than Burgundy Betty. <laughs> <laughs> I am older than our sprinter van. Absolutely. No, it's it's a thing. And I actually, it's funny you say it, EK, because I was thinking about it this morning. I don't want to say it's bothered me, but when I'm in the middle of a race and I go through a timing mat and one of the announcers is there and, you know, through the halfway point of the marathon, it's a 52-year-old D-degree Grease Bauer. And, and yeah. it started to sort of bother me that the most interesting thing about me was my age. It's all they'd say. That's not true. I'd finish. They'd be like, <laughs> and can you believe she's 52 years old? And, and I really going into Ultraman was like, I just want to give them bloody something else to say other than I'm 52. Now they can say world champion D-degree Grease Bauer. And go. maybe 52 yeah, comes it'd be, after uh, it'd be 52-year-old world, world champion, champion D- unfortunately. <laughs> So, so you'd appreciate it. A few years ago, I was at a race called Bucks County and I, I was broken away and it, you, you do these laps and I kept going by the announcer and the announcer every time was like, look at this guy go, this young whippersnapper, he's going somewhere in this sport. And I'm like, I'm 45. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to take away from it. And you know this, EK, from just our conversations off the side. My biggest pet peeve is when people say that age is just a number. Because it's not. Age is a really, really real thing. But I think what I'm seeking to prove is that we can be successful in spite of age. Age is something you have to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. And you do have to account for the fact that things are different when you're 52 than they are when you're 45 than they are when you're 35 than they are when you're 30. I I joked, I raced a a 70.3 in September, largely to break up the Ultraman training. Because if I had done this huge block of Ultraman training, my coach is like, you're going to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. So even though we're not specifically prepared for a 70.3, we're just going to go race it to give you a break, freshen you up, get a fitness boost from the race itself, and then dive right back in. So I went to Augusta 70.3, had a, a not a very good swim. And I was back a couple of minutes from the lead pack of women on the bike. And again, I, I could see them and the thought popped through my head, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I thought to go after them on the bike and little by little I did, I reeled them back in. And as I passed the group of four at the front and I, I at first I thought, well, maybe I'll just sit in. I've caught the lead group. And I was like, you know, I'm still feeling good. I'm just going to go. And I rode past them and I thought, I'm old enough to be your mother. <laughs> <laughs> And it feels good, right? It yep. feels good because I am finding success in sport at an age where most people think you have to be done. And I just think the same way I thought when I was in college, when I graduated and everyone's like, okay, well, your swim career's over. I'm like, why does it have to be over? Yeah. Why, when you turn 45, 46, 47, does your sports career have to be over even as a professional? So I think I'm redefining what success is. I'm never going to win the Ironman World Championship, you know, and 
But the fact is, when I came to the sport as a professional, I didn't necessarily think that was going to happen when I got into the sport. I just wanted to see how good I can be. And now at 52, I'm finding I'm in a lot of ways better than I was when I was 35. Right. And you're setting personal best watches on the bike and same same in the pool and same in the run. So it's like, yeah, you're proving right there that you can keep doing it. You can keep pushing those those barriers. What age is doing is it's forcing me to be more thoughtful. Yes. Uh, yes. It's forcing me to be more thoughtful in, in all of the details. I think, you know, when I was 35, 36, 37, I just was like, oh, if I do the training, I'll be, I'll be successful. And now I'm having to think more about the training. I'm having to think, well, what ways that aren't, my aerobic engine is developed as it's ever going to be. I've mm-hmm. been an endurance athlete for more than 40 years of my 52 years of life. So my engine isn't going to get any more robust, but finding improvements in other things, nutrition, the gym, I spend a lot of time in the gym and I take it as seriously as I take my swim, bike, run training. And I think that's incredibly important, particularly for people as they get older and particularly for women as they get older. And so I'm a huge advocate of, of gym work with a caveat of Yes, we have to pick up heavy stuff, but don't do it by yourself. Find a find a, mm-hmm. a good strength coach because if you try to go in and front squat or back squat or deadlift and your your form is not good or you're not moving well enough to pick up a heavy load, it is going to cause an injury that <laughs> at our age you might yeah. not come back from. So these things are important, but do it with with good guidance. I've gotten a lot of help with nutrition. This tends to be my way, and I, and I defer a lot of credit, but I am extremely well-coached and well-supported with my community, my triathlon coach, my, my strength coach, my nutritionist, my sports psychologist. My training partners, my friends are all incredibly supportive, and it feels really, really good. I want to look at this from a different point of view. Are all of the things that you're mentioning, your friends, your training partner, your thoughtfulness, is this the key to the longevity that you've had? Because to me, that's almost what's more important than your quote-unquote age, right? is that you've been doing an incredible job for 20 years. You're getting better year over year. You're still performing extremely well. How have you managed to do that when a lot of other people don't seem to be able to have as long of a career as you've had? I'm not sure because I don't live in other people's heads and hearts. I consider myself incredibly lucky to love what I do so much that I wish I didn't love it so much. I really, truly, I mean, EK knows this from from her career, you love it so much. And it, as a result, it breaks your heart that much more. It hasn't all been sunshine and unicorns. I mean, I, it, there have been injuries that have brought me to the verge of, of retirement and that it's just too hard. I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's a difficult sport in that we're not a mainstream sport. And so financial support, sponsorship, incredibly difficult to come by. So financially, it's a very, very difficult sport to carry on with, particularly long-term, because the financial support isn't mm-hmm. necessarily there. But I love it. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. And, you know, I said to my husband after Ultraman, once you're done, you're done forever, right? For me, anyway, I, I would not come back and race as an age grouper. I think it's great, people that that do, but I think, you know, part of what I love is is pushing the edge and pushing the boundary. And I think... Once my turn is up, my turn is up. Mm-hmm. But I want to make sure when that turn is up that I've gotten everything out of it. And I still feel like there's there's more to be had. And I, I just love what I do. So I think in addition to the fact that I'm a part of what motivates me to be smarter and make these smarter decisions as I get older and to look really dive deep into the details, to go to bed at seven o'clock at night and sleep for nine, 10, 11 hours a night because you need that you know recovery, um, particularly as we get older. 
to pay attention to those type of details. I do it because I love it. And I just want the music to keep playing a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eventually there's not going to be a chair for me to sit on. And I know that time is coming, <laughs> but for now I just want to, I want the music to keep playing. So we did an episode a while back, a few years ago now, where we really dived into the science of aging. And that science has been changing a lot. There really was a belief for a very long time of here's exactly what happens. This happens to you at 30. This happens to you at 40. This happens to you at 50. This happens to you at 60. Most of it sucks and there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) What the new research is showing is it looked at how that original research was done and said there's actually flaws in that. And when they redid the research, they said it's not quite that inevitable. So what I would throw it, I agree with you, age is not just a number. But the argument I would make is age does affect you, but it's not an inevitability. It's not a, here's what's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about this. I agree 100%. And I think age hits us each in in a different way. I mean, I have friends that are slightly younger that are being you know, they're feeling age, you know, at least by what they're saying more heavily than, than I am and in ways that I am not. I think there's something to be said that I spent the first 24 years of my life as a swimmer. I wasn't yeah. coordinated enough to do anything else. <laughs> I think swimming above most other sports builds that endurance engine. It, it builds yeah. the endurance engine, but it also mitigates the pounding, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't playing soccer, so yep. my knees are okay. I mm-hmm. wasn't putting the wear and tear. I wasn't a cross country runner, right? So I don't have, I didn't start professional sport until I was 35. Most people are thinking about retirement by their mid to late thirties from at least endurance professional sports where 40 seems to be this sort of tipping point where if you're over 40 and racing endurance sports, you're, you know, you're pushing it. Mm -hmm. I didn't start till I was 35. So I think all of those little things inadvertently being 52 for me is different than being 52 for, for somebody else. And I think some of it's genetic. Maybe I just have the genes that for whatever reason, I am able to sort of keep going with this right now, but I also have the heart for it in that I choose to keep doing it because it's not for everybody. It is, it is in so many ways, incredibly thankless. And yeah, I can sit here and say I'm a world champion, but in the same breath, I can say, and so what, mm-hmm. right? What difference does that make? It really doesn't make any difference at all in terms of my career going forward. It's not like this windfall of, oh, now I'm made. It's like I won an Olympic gold medal and, you know, the phone just won't stop ringing. No, it's not. That's not <laughs> the case, right? So you're stooping to these low level podcasts. I, like, well, no, I have the heart to keep going. The because sponsorship's just around the corner. <laughs> yeah, it's just around just, the corner. Yeah, you know, the phone just won't stop ringing. <laughs> I just love what I do. I, I love it. And I think that speaks as much to my longevity as, as anything. Mm. Yeah. And I, th- I think what I'm hearing you say is, and I think and I can definitely relate to this too, is I think in your twenties and thirties, when you're training, you can simply turn the boxes green on training peaks and you get fitter yep. and you get faster and it's all great and fun and cool. And you go to a race and you show up and you podium, whatever. As you get older in your 40s and your 50s, all those other things that sit around the periphery of training, sleep, nutrition, strength, body work, you know, I know that you're meticulous about that. Like all those other things have to be so dialed. And if you let one or two of them slip, it's like, yep. you're going to start seeing the inconsistencies. Yeah, the demands for perfection are a lot higher yeah. uh, as we get older. And that's not to say I'm, I'm still not perfect. So that's what makes me excited and that there's more for me still to learn about how to keep pushing the envelope in spite of age. Oh, so that leads me to the next question then, which is what's next? (laughs) If you're still pushing the envelope. 
I'm still pushing the, you know, it's funny um, at the awards for Ultraman, they said it's kind of a cool awards celebration because every athlete is invited. They get three minutes on the mic to say whatever they like, thank their crews, thank their families, tell funny jokes about their experience out on the course. And before I got up to give my three minutes, the race organizer said, we never give away free entry, but because you broke the course record, if you want to come back and play again next year, your entry will be free. And I stood there and I looked them in the face and I said, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I thought you were going to say, oh, hell yes. No, I, you know, it's funny. I look at this event and I think, I don't know what more I could have done out yeah, there. I, yeah. I, to go back, yeah, there's a couple of things that didn't go right and you know, yeah, I'd love the swim course record, but conditions weren't right for it on the day. But who's to say next year they're going to be any right, different? You can't and control that, yeah. the undertaking, it was everything I wanted from this experience. And I just, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with it. So I kind of think that that story's been written, but I won't say that there aren't other stories I'd like to still write. Uh -oh. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Come on. Cliffhanger. <laughs> I think you can go bigger. Super duper. Ultraman. Well, there's like a Decaman, believe it or not. Oh, there's 10 yeah. days in Iron Man every day. And then there's like <laughs> one by yeah. where it's like a one by Decaman where it's 10 times the distance, but straight in a row, you sleep when you can type yeah. things. I won't say that Ram doesn't intrigue me slightly, but I think I'd rather do it as a team of four, not as a solo effort. Cause I like yeah. to sleep even just a little right. bit. Um, there are things that certainly intrigue me, but yeah, I have a couple, I have another chapter to go, I think, oh. but yeah. We'll see see. Oh, watch this space, huh? <laughs> watch this space. Little eyeball emoji. <laughs> so this is a special episode. So we aren't going to finish out with our normal take homes, which is your 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 one wisdom to share. But so we've kind of hinted at this. Those of us who are, are a little older uh, tend to be a little wiser, a little better looking. Where didn't is this going? Let's start get a this response. over. He, he, was, he was looking at me, but in my head, I'm like, dude, I'm 40. I feel old as it is. So he's obviously not talking about me. He just looked at you as if you're the young pup. That was definitely directed at you. Right. I think you are the young pup here. Well, so. I, am, I am here because you guys are all so old. Well, are, you, are you younger than me? How old are you? 42. Oh, I got you beat. The big 4-0, girl. Oh, gee. Well, coming, coming in this February, I'll be 41. I'll be catching you. We'll give Rob a lollipop February when one. we're done. <laughs> February 19th. Big month. Hey, it's Julie Young. Didi and I have had a blast recording a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete called Fast Talk Femme. We've had an amazing experience sharing knowledge and gathering with experts like Dr. Dana Liss, Jen Saigo, Dr. Emily Krauss, and Catherine Cram to talk about the female physiology. We're looking forward to empowering female athletes and their coaches with the best evidence-based information available to enhance and improve their performance. We begin releasing episodes this January, so be sure to come back for this pioneer launch. So getting back <laughs> to it, you have done something very unique. You obviously have really dialed this in and figured it out. So I'm very interested in with 20 years of experience and a lot of really unique and interesting sports and obviously a lot of success, any wisdoms that you would have to share with our audience? Honestly, just love what you do and, and surround yourself with the, the best people that you can find and, and follow your heart. I, I've traveled the road less traveled for sure. And I've learned so much and had such a great time that I have zero regrets, but I've had a lot of help along the way. So 
find your passion, uh, surround yourself with excellence and, and go for it. Well, it was great having you on the show. Thank you for having and, me. And a huge congratulations on, on not only finishing, but winning such a tough event. Thank you so much. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com or tweet at us with at fasttalklabs. Head to fasttalklabs.com to get access to our endurance sports knowledge base, coach continuing education, as well as our in-person and remote athlete services. For TD Grease Bauer, Emma Kate Lidberry, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.